Welcome to Time Traveling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Patty. And I'm Trisha. This week we're kicking off 2023 with the first story of Season 16. We join the Doctor and K9 as they meet new companion Romana in the Rybos operation. As usual, we'll be discussing the Doctor, companions and villains, and give your thoughts on the story as a whole. Now we'd also love to hear your thoughts on this story. So in order to join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can email us at timetravelingteam at teamproductions.com. But first, as always, I shall lead us through the story recap. And I shall sit on my hole and do nothing. <laughs> the first step is honesty. <laughs> <laughs> Part 1. In the TARDIS, the Doctor is testing a dog whistle on the newly constructed K9 Mark II. He then tells him that he tends to go on a long holiday, but suddenly the power of the TARDIS goes out. The door is then open and a golden light fills the console room and a voice fills the air, telling the Doctor that he is needed. Initially confused by the voice, the Doctor realises that it belongs to one of the Universal Guardians and he steps through the doors onto a top of a mesa. He looks around and sees a parasol in an empty wicker chair beneath it that suddenly is filled by a man wearing a white safari-style clothing. He tells the Doctor that he has been chosen for a vitally important task involving the key to time, a mythical construct that maintains the balance of time. He tells the Doctor that the key is a cube made up of six segments which have been scattered throughout the universe. He says that the key is too powerful for anyone to have control over, but there are times where its power is needed to halt time so the Guardians can rectify it to avoid the universe being plunged into internal chaos. The Doctor is initially reluctant to take on the job, but agrees when the Guardian says there is no repercussions if he chooses not to do it. He then asks how he will find the segments, and the Guardian tells him that the segments are all disguised as various different things, but he will be given a locator in order to find them. The Guardian also tells him that he will be given an assistant, a fact the Doctor is not happy with and asks to be allowed to work with only K9. The Guardian refuses and says that K9 is only a machine and that his assistant is already waiting for him in the TARDIS. Before he leaves, the Guardian identifies himself as the White Guardian and says that as part of the Universal Balance, there also exists a Black Guardian. He says the Black Guardian is also seeking out the key for his own purposes and warns the Doctor to be careful and stop him from getting it. He then fades from sight and the Doctor returns to the TARDIS. In the TARDIS, the Doctor tells K-9 that the holiday is off, but they are interrupted when his new assistant, a tall, elegant-looking woman in a white Grecian-style outfit, introduces herself. She says her name is Romana Varatna Lunder, and that she has been sent by the President of the Supreme Council of Time Lords. She hands him a crystalline rod, informing him that it is the core to the key to time. The Doctor comments on her eagerness for their task, and chalks it up to her inexperience. However, he gets angry when she comments that her inexperience is superseded by her academic achievements, which he says are better than his were during his time at the Academy. She then tells him how to use the court to locate each of the segments, informing him that she installed a port for it into the TARDIS console while he was with the White Guardian. The Doctor puts in the core and is given the coordinates of the first segment, which is on the planet Serenus Minima. Romana Varatna Lunder continues to explain how the core can locate the segment at close range and revert them back to their original form. She then asks if he can do anything else, and the Doctor instructs her to stay out of his way as much as possible before going back to the console. Romana Varatna Lunder starts to take issue with his high-handed manner, but he cuts across her and tells her that the coordinates for the segment have changed. The Doctor is confused by this and becomes moody when he can't figure out what is going on. Romana Varatna Lunder comments that he is sulking and states that he is sulking as a result of what she believes to be a massive compensation syndrome. The Doctor takes massive offence to this and retorts her belief, bringing them back to the topic at hand. He says the new coordinates put the segment on the planet Rebos and plots a course for it. Elsewhere, two fur-clad men stand atop the battlements of a fortress as a snowstorm blows around them. One of them, Garen, calls his colleague Unstaff to his side and together they open a manhole cover. 
Darren tells Unstaff to drop a large chunk of meat down into the hole where they hear a bestial growl. He then tells Unstaff to climb down through the hole and Unstaff reluctantly does so. Inside the fortress, a group of men in the jewel room complete an ornate ceremony before they seal off the room. From outside, they open a secret panel in one of the interior walls that leads into the chamber holding the beast. However, the beast has succumbed to the effects of the drugged meat and Unstaff makes his way to the jewel room. He then starts to cut into the cabinet holding the jewels. He then places a strange blue ornament into the cabinet, but he gets a call from Garen who informs him that the Graf Vindicay has arrived and he needs to go meet him. Unstaff says that he will finish up and then reseals the cabinet before heading back to the secret tunnel. Outside, Garen, now affecting a more dignified accent, meets the Graf and his escort of armoured bodyguards and welcomes them to the fortress. He requests that the bodyguards be sent back to their ship lest they cause trouble amongst the locals, and the Graf orders his subordinate, Shalak, to send them back. Garen then heads with the Graf and Shalak into the fortress. A few moments later, the Taris lands and the Doctor and Romana Baratna Lunder exit. The Doctor lays down the ground rules for their adventure and also says that her name is too long and that he will instead just call her Romana. She says that she doesn't like being called that, and he says that it's either that or Fred. She happily opts for Fred, but he continues to call her Romana. He then tells her to keep her wits about her right before he steps into a net booby trap designed to capture wild animals. Inside the fortress, Garen and the Graf begin negotiations for the sale of the planet. Garen reveals that the population would be considered primitive as they have no knowledge of other worlds or their placement within the expense of the Serenic Empire. The Graf seems unimpressed with the planet, but Garen leaves him the valuation documents and says that he will return in the morning to continue their discussions. The Graf and Shalak go through the documents and the Graf notices a mining report on Jetrick, the most valuable mineral resource in the galaxy. He excitedly says that possession of such a resource could help in their plans and get him to his goal of reclaiming his throne quicker. He says that they could sell the Jetrick to buy a mercenary army to reconquer his homeland. Unbeknownst to them, they are being listened to by Garen. However, he is forced to stop eavesdropping when he hears the Doctor of Romana enter and he pretends to be a watchman, reverting back to his less refined mannerisms. After he passes, the Doctor notices that the accent Garen was speaking in was re- reminiscent of someone from Somerset in England. Romana says that Rebos is a protective planet and therefore no one from Earth could possibly be on it. They carry on down the hall and they arrive at the jewel room, where the core starts to beep. The Doctor unlocks the door and Romana says that something inside the jewel case must be the segment. The Doctor starts on working it with his sonic screwdriver. Up on top of the battlements, Unstaff confronts a guard coming to feed the beast and offers him a drink to warm him up against the cold. The guard happily takes it and quickly succumbs to the effect of the drug contents, and Unstaff lays him down. Not to cause suspicion, Unstaff blows the signal horn to indicate that the morning feeding has been completed. Romana hears the signal horn and enters the secret tunnel to investigate. At that moment, the jewel room guards return and operate the lever to seal off the tunnel. Romana calls out for help as she starts to get sealed inside, and the doctor goes to help her, noticing that the beast has started to wake up. Part 2. The guards inform their captain that something is obstructing the gate, and he orders them to take it back up, as he assumes that the beast is the one causing it. The doctor uses this to help Romana get through, and the gate starts to close again. The doctor comforts the shaken Romana, telling her that the beast is called a Shrivenzal. Their conversation is cut short when they hear the guards outside, and the doctor says they need to hide for fear that they will be executed as thieves. The captain leads the guards through another ceremony for the start of their watch, and after it ends, Garen appears. He claims to be a merchant from the north and shows his documentation to the captain. He asks for leave to deposit a large sum of money in the jewel room and offers a bribe to the captain. The captain agrees and tells him to bring him the money to the jewel room that evening. Garen and the captain depart and after they leave, the guards relax and begin to converse amongst themselves, thereby failing to notice the doctor and Romana slip out of the room. Garen goes to the Graf's room and inquires about how he slept. Garen makes a throwaway comment about the Graf being used to sleeping in harsher terrain, 
which causes the graph to rant about how the Empire betrayed him and allowed his throne to be usurped despite all his devotion and accomplishments for the Empire. Shalak manages to calm him down and the graph changes the topic of conversation to the purchasing of the planet. Meanwhile, the Doctor and Romana roam the corridors in search of Garen. Romana said that they are wasting their time looking for him, but the Doctor suggested he could also be seeking the segment of the key, either for himself or on behalf of the Black Guardian. Romana inquires about the Black Guardian, but the Doctor tells her to keep quiet. She starts to give out to him, but he distracts her by commenting that she looks good for her age of 140, and it goes back to suggesting that Garen is just a simple con man. At that moment, Garen has taken the Graf and Shalak on a tour of the fortress and brought them to the jewel room. As he shows them around, they spot the blue jewel that Unstaff put in the case the previous night, and they identify it as Jetrick. Garen asks one of the guards to come over and speak about it, but unbeknownst to the others, the guard is actually Unstaff in disguise. He tells him a story about how the Jetrick mine was lost due to glacial disturbances, but he believed that his father discovered it, its location. Garen surreptitiously steps on his foot to get him to ease off on the story, as Shellac is wary of the veracity of it. However, the Graf says that he wouldn't dare try to trick him, and asks for proof of the story. Unstaff shows him a map, but then keeps it for himself as he leaves the room. Garen tells the Graf to ignore the story, saying that he is just another local spinning a tall tale. At that moment, the Doctor and Romana, having been listening to the exchange, show themselves and say that they believe Unstaff's story. Garen rushes the Graf and Shalak out, and saying that they still have much to look at. After they leave, the Doctor wonders how anyone could still fall for such an old trick as the one that Garen and Unstaff were pulling. Romana is taken aback by this, seeing that Unstaff looks like such an honest man, and the Doctor chides her naivety. In the Graf's chambers, Garen says that he will take the word of the sale of the plan to his clients, but asks for a deposit as a guarantee. The Graf is shocked by this, and Shalak expresses concerns also. However, Garen assures him that he will not abscond with the money, and says that he will be kept in the jewel room for safety. The Graf agrees and has Shalak take Garen to his ship to retrieve the deposit. After they leave, the Graf wanders around the room and discovers the hidden microphone that Garen was using to listen in on them. He decides to replace it and wait to see how things will proceed. Outside, Garen meets with Unstaff and reprimands him for the story he told the Graf and advises him to stick to the plan rather than complicating it, lest the Graf realise that he is being conned. Unstaff suggests that they mug Shalak as he returns with the money, but Garen again firmly states that they will stick to the plan and retrieve the money from the jewel room by repeating their break-in from the previous night. At that moment, the Doctor and Romana are investigating the wall-top entrance to the Shriven Giles' chamber. The Doctor says that he has figured out what Garen and Unstaff intend to do, and says that they will wait for them. Inside the fortress, Shalak returns, but before he can say anything, the Graf shows him the microphone and takes him out into the corridor. They then begin to discuss the con being played on them, and deduce that Garen may not know the true value of Jetrick, but may know where to find more of it. They make their way to the jewel room and meet Garen there, who is waiting with the Captain to deposit the money. The captain ushers them out as they need to begin the locking ceremony. Later, the Doctor and Romana observe Garen and Unstaff as they prepare to enter the wall-top entrance. The Doctor tells Romana to keep an eye on them whilst he goes down to the jewel room to head them off. The Doctor is stopped by a guard, but he hypnotises them so that he can get past. In the jewel room, Unstaff removes the Jetrick from the cabinet and then removes the money from the safe using a key that Garen stole from the captain. He then hides when he hears the Doctor opening the door and then locks him inside. He flees down the corridor, waking the guard from his trance, who then sounds the alarm. The doctor, realising that he is trapped, enters the drug shriven Zal's room via the secret tunnel and climbs back up to the top of the wall, where he confronts Garen. Romana appears, and they pretend to arrest him. They then take him back to the TARDIS, but they are stopped by the Graf, who orders his bodyguards to execute them. Part 3. The doctor asks him to stop, saying that it is a case of mistaken identity. Garen then begs for his life, 
but the graph berates him and strikes him across the face. The doctor tries to intervene and is slapped by the graph, leading the doctor to slap him back. Sherlock intervenes before the graph orders the execution to go ahead, and he orders the doctor and the others to be taken to his quarters so they can be interrogated. The graph goes to the jewel room, where he is informed by the captain that the money was stolen, but he is sent for an oracle to locate the thief. The graph notices that the Jetrick is also gone. The captain says he has never heard of Jetrick, and the graph realises the full extent of the con. Meanwhile, in the graph's quarters, the doctor and Romana continue to plead their innocence. Suddenly, a beeping sound comes from a device on Garen's wrist, and he smashes it before Shalak can take it off him. The trio are then confined to the quarters while Shalak leads a search for Unstaff. Romana treats Garen's wounded hand whilst he congratulates them on their capture of him, but he laments their fate, informing them of the graph's cruel, blood-tusting nature. The doctor says that it was a foolish idea to try and trick someone of that nature, and he uses his dog whistle to summon canine from the TARDIS. Meanwhile, outside, Unstaff is being chased by the guards, but he is called into a hut by an old man. One of the guards arrives at the hut and begins to search it, but recognises the old man as Binro, a noted heretic, and leaves him. Binro then gives Unstaff some food and drink and explains why he was charged with heresy. He says he believes that there are other inhabited planets besides Rebos, and that Rebos itself orbits the sun. He says that his statements went against the teachings of their people, and he was branded a heretic and maimed as a result. Unstaff tells him that his beliefs are true, and that he himself is from another planet. Back in the fortress, the Oracle finishes her ceremony and reveals Unstaff's location to be in the city concourse. The captain summons his men and follows the Oracle, but after they leave, the Graf orders Shalak to assemble his bodyguards so they can follow after them and retrieve the Jetrick. Back in the Graf's quarters, Garen reveals that he is actually from Earth as the Doctor suspected. He tells him that he fled after the failure of a con he pulled where he tried to sell Sydney Harbour. Roman is astounded by their relaxed attitude to their predicament, but the doctor tells her to calm down and asks Garen how he managed to get the Jetrick. He says that he came across it years before and used it as part of a planet-selling scheme. The doctor asks why the Graf wanted to buy the planet if he didn't know about the Jetrick beforehand. Garen tells him that he is a tyrant and that he let his half-brother rule in his stead once he went off to war. He says the people begged the half-brother to keep the throne as they did not want the Graf to return to power. As a result, the Graf is looking for a new world so he can build an army to reclaim his throne. The doctor tells them all to be quiet when he hears Shalak outside addressing his men, telling them that they will follow the captain and his guards to the area where Unstaff is. Once there, he tells them that they will kill everyone and take the Jetrick and the money back. He leaves one man to stay on guard outside the room, and then leads the others away. The doctor says they need to do something, and Garen regrets having destroyed his wrist communicator, as they can't warn Unstaff. He suddenly remembers the hidden microphone and gives it to the doctor, who takes the damaged communicator and attempts to do an ad hoc repair on it. Outside, K-9 arrives and stuns the guard before entering the door. The doctor manages to fix the communicator enough for Garen to send a message to Unstaff. He warns him that the guards are coming to look for him, and Binro tells him that he will be safe in the catacombs beneath the city. However, he warns him that the catacombs are also inhabited by shriven cells that are even bigger than the one in the jewel room. Once Garen finishes leaving his warning, the doctor leads him and the others to the concourse. He scouts around a bit but says that the way forward is blocked. Garen says that he will try and find a way around the guards, and after he leaves, Romana says that they should go back to the jewel room to retrieve the cube segment, but the doctor reveals that the segment is actually the Jetrick. He points out that only the Jetrick could have been the object that was moved locations, as the jewels have remained as stationary. Garen returns and says that he has found a way around the guards, and the doctor says that he will be able to find Unstaff using the locator. In the concourse, the oracle reveals that Unstaff has gone into the catacombs. 
The captain calls off the search, saying that the catacombs are a vast maze inhabited by the ice gods, and his men will not risk their lives down there. In the catacombs, the doctor and the others follow the locator signal towards them staff. Suddenly, K9 says that someone is approaching them from the rear, and they go into hiding in the recesses along the walls. A few moments later, the Grafman and his men appear. However, the doctor accidentally knocks over the skull of the skeleton in the recess that he is in, and the sound attracts the Graf and the others. Part 4 The doctor blows on his dog whistle, which alerts a nearby Shrivenzal, and the Shalak and the Graf and the others hide as they watch the beast pass. After it goes by, Shalak reminds the Graf of one of their previous adventures in a similar setting, of how long it took them to find their quarry. He suggests retrieving the oracle so that she can guide him towards Unstaff, and the Graf agrees. After they leave, the doctor rejoins the others and Roman reprimands him for his clumsiness. Garen tells him to stop bickering and the doctor tells him to press on to find his staff whilst he goes back to keep an eye on the graph. He also sends K9 with them to keep them safe. Meanwhile, deeper in the catacombs, Unstaff stops in order to give the tired uh, Binro a chance to rest. Binro asks him about travelling through space and Unstaff shows him the Jetrick and explains how it works. He then explains about his partnership with Garen and how this was to be their last job. Binro offers to go back and find Garen to bring him down so that they can escape together. Unstaff thanks him and asks him why he would be willing to risk his life to do that. Binro says that it is his way of thanking him for proving that his theories were true and that his life wasn't a waste. Before he goes, Unstaff gives him his risk communicator so that he can show it to Garen to prove that it isn't a trick. Back at the concourse, the Graf impatiently demands that the Oracle is brought to him and the captain says that she will arrive in her own time. The Graf takes the captain's manner as an insult and kills one of his men with a blaster. The captain is stunned by the technology, and the Graf demands that he fetch the Oracle at once. The doctor observes this from behind a pillar, and then quickly makes his way back to the fortress. In the catacombs, Romana notices that Garen is gone, and K9 says that he said that he had to go see a man about a dog. Romana then notices that the locator has also been taken from her belt, and expresses frustration with herself. K9 says her rhetorical conversation is not logical, but she tells him to keep quiet. Realising that he is only trying to help, she apologises and asks him what to do next. He then moves off, saying that he will seek out Garen. At that moment, Unstaff hears someone approaching and hides, but then comes out when Garen calls out to him. They exchange a warm greeting, and Garen says they need to go back to the city, but Unstaff says they can't leave in case Binro comes back. Garen says the Graf could find him first, but Unstaff says that it would take him ages due to the maze of tunnels in the catacombs. Garen then tells him that the Graf is using the Oracle to find him, Unstaff asks if maybe the Doctor and Romana can help them, but Garen says that they are only working together out of convenience. Meanwhile, the Graf and his men have returned back into the catacombs, but the Oracle warns them that only death awaits for all of them but one. Under pressure from the Graf, she leads them down the tunnels, and after a while they encounter Binro. Shalakin searches him and finds Unstaff's communicator, but he says he found it in the tunnels whilst relic hunting. He demands to know where he got it, but the Graf instead orders for them to continue forward, following the oracle. As they move on, all of them fail to notice the doctor's scarf trailing underneath one of the bodyguard's cloaks. Back at the entrance, the captain oversees his men as they roll a rudimentary cannon towards the tunnel entrance and then orders them to load it so they can kill any survivors that come back. Down in the tunnels, the oracle leads the graph of the others to Unstaff and Garen. Binro rushes forward to try and intervene, but he is killed by one of the bodyguards. Unstaff rushes forward in anger, but gets shot in the shoulder. The Grafton demands that he be given the Jetrick, and Unstaff throws it towards him along with the money. Suddenly a section of the roof collapses, and Unstaff says that Binro had warned him about the unstable nature of the catacombs. The Graf demands to know where the Doctor and Roman are, but Garen says that they are actually security agents from the Empire, 
who were there to arrest them for breaching the cordon around the Rybos. He gloatingly says that they will report the Graf's presence on the planet as well, and that he will no longer be a nobleman, but instead be labelled a common criminal. The Graf angrily orders him to be executed, but suddenly a Shrivenzal appears, which had been covertly summoned by the Doctor using his dog whistle. The growls of the Shrivenzal and the blaster fire aimed at it are heard by Roman and K9, who make their way towards the sounds. The ruckus is also heard by the captain, who uses the cannon to seal off the entrance. The resulting explosion causes a massive ceiling collapse in the chamber containing the Graf and the others. All but one of the bodyguards is buried beneath the rubble, and Sholak dies as a result of being crushed by a rock. The Graf orders the surviving guard and the Oracle back into the tunnels while swearing revenge for the fallen Sholak, vowing to destroy the entire planet. Roman and K9 arrive via a different tunnel and hear someone banging from within the pile of rubble. Caroline carefully blasts it away and to reveal Garen and Unstaff still alive. Garen thanks them for their rescue and hands back the locator. In the other tunnel, the Graf kills the Oracle and turns to the remaining bodyguard, who unbeknownst to him is actually the Doctor. The Graf, now insane and believing that he is reliving many of his battles, hands the Doctor a bomb and orders him to sacrifice himself in order to seal off the tunnels and bring truth to the Oracle's prophecy that only one of them would survive. The Graf embraces him and then charges off down the tunnels, calling out orders for Shalak. A few moments later, the bomb, which the Doctor had swapped with Jetrick during their embrace, goes off, killing him. Outside the fortress, the Doctor and Romana bid goodbye to Garen and Unstaff. Before they go, Garen asks to hold the Jetrick one last time, and whilst giving an elaborate speech, swaps it with a piece of ordinary stone. The Doctor then hugs him goodbye, and they watch as the TARDIS departs. Unstaff comments on their losses, but Garen says they still have the Graf's ship along with the money on it, and then reveals his deceit with the Jetrick. However, he discovers that the Doctor had switched it back again during their hug, and he gives out about the lack of trust in anyone in the universe. In the TARDIS, the Doctor uses the locator to revert the Jetrick to its original form as a segment of the cube. Together with Romana, they examine it, and the Doctor says that they have five more pieces to go. End of the story. Very good, very good. Thank you very much. That felt good. Good to get back <laughs> in the swing of things. <laughs> I will give you full credit for using Romana's full name until it's actually agreed in the story that she's using the abbreviation. I thank you very much. Thank you very much. I, I said if it was good enough for Harry to call him Dr. Sullivan up until such a time as someone addressed him as Harry, it was good enough for her to be called Romana Veratna Lunder until addressed as Romana or Fred. Yeah. <laughs> I will not be calling her by her full name because I will butcher it. Um, <laughs> and also I didn't write it in my notes, so I don't have it in front of me. So Okay, no worries. So, as always, uh, we will take our, our trip over to the trivia spot. So what have you got for us this week? Cool. So, The Rybos Operation, this first story of season 16, aired from the 2nd to the 23rd of September 1978. In the writing chair this week, we have Robert Holmes. This is story number 13 of 18 for Bob. Previous stories were... <gasps> The Crotons, the Space Pirates, Spearhead from Space, Tower of the Autons, Carnival of Monsters, the Spa- Time Warrior, back it up, and I keep going. The Time Warrior, the Ark in Space, Pyramids of Mars, the Brain of Morbius, the Deadly Assassin, the Talons of Wenchuan, and the Sunmakers. His remaining stories are The Power of Crawl, The Caves of Androsony, The Two Doctors, The Mysterious Planet, and The Ultimate Bow, which is the first episode of The Trial of the Time Lord. The director for the story is George Spenton Foster. This is the second and final directing credit for George. We previously saw his work in Image of the Fendal. 
So, as we've probably gathered from Paddy's summary, the Ryboss operation is the first story in what is going to be a season-long quest to find the legendary key to time. Um, this is the first time we've had a story arc encompass the entire season. Some people sort of argue that, like, technically in season eight we had the master, but these were those are all separate stories that just happened to have the master in them. There was no end goal with the master. There was nothing that they were characters were working towards and those stories weren't really connected to each other so this is the first fully connected mission story or mission season arc as such all four parts of the right bus operation actually ran over their allocated time so a lot of material was actually cut out for the broadcast version but if you read the novelization you'll see a lot of that stuff being put back in working titles for the story include operation (laughs) random uh, the Galactic Con Man was a bit too on the nose, I think. And the mm. Ryboss file. Eh, I think Ryboss operation is yeah, the I best think... option now. So when you're watching this, you may see that Tom Baker, in the majority of the story, has a weird... It looks like a scab or something on his lip. So what actually happened was he was bitten by a dog. Um. So I think it was, if I remember correctly... The gentleman who played uh, the graph, mm. uh, he had a dog that would, if you had like, or if he had like food in his mouth, like say you had like a piece of ham or something that's dangling, right? The dog would jump up and grab it out of your mouth. It's kind of like their party piece. And Tom decided he was going to try it. And next thing you know, they turn around and the dog is after biting Tom's lip. Um, and so, basically, for the rest of the story, for the publicity stills, and for a lot of the subsequent stories, that Tom has this weird scar or scab where the dog bit him. Um, they did try to work around it, so there are some scenes where you notice they try and keep Tom the left side of Tom's face out mm. of shot. Um, but there's some scenes, like the initial scene with the White Guardian, it's very obvious. Yeah. Um, but there's also other scenes where it's not there at all, because obviously, you know, time or whatever. Um, Garen, you may have gathered, based off his um, comments, was originally meant to be Australian. Hence why he's saying, like, when he's talking about the Sydney Opera House, he's like, oh, I sold, like, what is it, like, Sydney Harbour, they also wanted to throw in the Opera House. Mm. And he was saying that, like, Basically, he was saying that like, it would be a betrayal to his country to sell the yeah. Opera House. Hmm. Which, when they're later saying that he's from the UK, kind of doesn't really match up. Yeah, but no, it was a bit of a strange one. Yeah, he's originally from uh, Sydney. Or he was originally meant to be Australian. Um, the sets, interestingly enough, I didn't really think about this much when I was watching it, what the sets of this story were. Um, but the sets were left over from the BBC's adaptation of Anna Karenina. Yeah, they're very, it's very Russian-esque. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Originally, the script called for the Doctor to be in awe of the Guardian, the White Guardian. Um, However, Tom insisted that he kind of play it mockingly while trying not to laugh at how serious it all was. Do you know? So, Mm. if you notice, there is a little bit of reverence there, but there's also like this underlying schoolboy, you know, whatever acting up and um, i'm sure we'll talk about that more when we get to our character discussion hmm. initially the jethric was going to be important because it was a source of energy that could power a fleet of spaceships as opposed to being like 
this like super valuable thing in money and energy and whatever so like the purpose of it kind of changes a little bit as they describe it in the story like yeah um what's his face fucking unstaff goes on about how it could power a fleet of ships Mm -hmm. whereas then later on they're talking about how you know it could do so much more than that it could power them for forever and whatever so the purpose of it was kind of a bit floaty um Rybos itself is patterned after medieval russia its name being anagram of the common russian name boris uh, the currency, which is the OPEC, was a reference to both the Russian Kopec, which is one hundredth of a ruble, and the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, better known as OPEC. Uh, the Sea with the White Garden was with the White Garden. The Sea with the White Guardian was actually written by Anthony Reed and Graham Williams, so our producer and story editor. Mm-hmm. Um, it was. Anthony Reed's idea for the Jethric to be the first segment of the key to time. So that was his contribution. A uh, couple of things during production. Um, George Spenton Foster, our director, had to contend with a uh, demarcation dispute amongst the crew. Basically, there was disagreement over who was responsible for lighting the torches which decorated the sets. So okay, you've got one group saying it's your job. You've got another group saying it's your job. I'm guessing it's props versus set design, maybe. Mm. Have me a bit of a to and fro. Um, George actually originally planned to erect large colored screens so that the chroma key could be used to enlarge the scale of the sets, such as like the White Guardian's Limbo, and to make it the size of the Shrubbenzal in the catacombs bigger. But the floor technicians couldn't agree on who would operate the screens. <laughs> and so the effect had to be abandoned. <gasps> oh. Um, originally, the Graf didn't murder the Seeker himself, but sent her back to the catacombs where his explosion would have killed her. Um, believing himself to be the prophesied survivor, the Graf took on the ammunition pouch from a supposed dead guard. And then the doctor would reveal himself at this stage while the explosion detonated. So slightly different from what we got. Mm-hmm. Here you have Graf making sure he's the last one standing as opposed to just believing that he's prophesied to be the last yeah. one standing. Um, originally the shortened form of... Oh, I do have it. Romana... Oh, fuck it. Romana... Romana... No. No, I'm going to completely pass it. Say it for me, please. Romana Varathalunder. Yeah. Thank you. Romana Varathalunder. There we go. Excellent. <laughs> Um, originally, the abbreviated form of her name was going to be Romy, which was called out in the special different DVD input text. Glad with that one for Mana, to be honest. Um, Tom took exception to Romana's bright white dress. It's a very nice bright white dress. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll say Romana looks amazing in yeah. this story. I had a moment where I went like, no, I I've talked before about you know like the the presentation of the female companions and how it works and various different things. But I saw Roman in that dress and I went, holy fuck, she is stunning. She is stunning. Yeah. Um, but Tom found it distracting. I wonder why. Mm. Um, it was intended that she would always be in white. Uh, to sort of reflect 
they said yeah that she's like an ice queen she does have like sort of ice queen vibes um but these were dropped after a while because apparently her being all might was distracting it's also very princess leia i given the fact that star wars came out a year before yeah it's very princess leia to have the sort of main female all in white but also as well like um just because you know uh, me being a mythology nerd and you also being a mythology nerd Mm. i get athena vibes you know she's very wise very yeah yeah i do too i do get athena vibes um this story is the last season opener to introduce a new companion until we get to rose Every other companion change is either at the end of a season or part with her. Oh, yeah. I actually never fucking noticed that. Yeah. Um, apparently, uh, Elizabeth Sladen was actually asked to come back to replace Leela. Um, but Liz Sladen declined and that was where Romana was created instead. And part of me is like, but, but, but. But we'll get Sarah Jane back eventually. For now, it is Romana's time to shine. Yes. Um, there was also a lot of debate about whether K9 should come back because the prop caused a lot of problems in season 15. Mm. Um, but the character was so popular with kids that basically, with the assurance that the new prop would be more efficient, Graham Williams approved the introduction of K9 Mark II. Um, the way they sort of describe it on the DVD special features is K9 was a bit like Marmite. Or Vegemite, whatever you want to call it. In the sense that young kids loved him. Mm. Teenagers, though, not so much. Because they thought that he was too childish. And, you know, bearing in mind that he came in um, after Philip Pinchcliffe left. Yeah. And so he's sort of like this lightening of the mood and clearing the air after Philip's era. Um, and apparently it was sort of like a mixed bag on whether fans actually liked the character. Obviously, young kids adored him, um, which is one of the reasons why Graham Williams decided to keep him because at the end of the day, he looked, this is a program that's meant to be watched by children. So, mm. you know, give them a you know, character that they can connect with. Obviously, it will still have limitations. It can't go a lot of places <laughs> or whatever, but we'll see. So, on to our cast. So, as the White Guardian, we have Cyril Lockham. Lockham? Lockham? Let me go with Lockham. It is the first of two appearances for Cyril. We'll see him again in Enlightenment. His non-hoop credits include Out of the Clouds, A Midsummer Night's Dream, Coronation Street, A Man for All Seasons, The Foresight Saga, and some others do have him. Cyril passed away in 1989. Garen is played by Ian Cuthbertson. Have I said that right? Cuthbertson? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, only Doctor Who acting credit for Ian, though he was considered for the part of the Fifth Doctor, which is interesting. His non-Who credits include Gorillas in the Mist, which is actually one of my favourite films. I haven't watched it in forever and I can't regret who he was in it, so I'm going to have to watch it again. Scotch on the Rocks and Sutherland's Law. Ian passed away in 2009. As Unstopped, we have Nigel Plaskett. This is the only Doctor Who acting credit for Nigel. His non-Who credits include Muppets Most Wanted, Thomas and Friends, where he does the narration, New Captain Scarlet, Muppet Treasure Island, The Muppet Christmas Carol, and The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You may gather a lot of Muppets in there. Uh, he was also in Labyrinth. Um, he Basically, he became a performer for The Muppets. He was a Muppet performer. Oh, right. I was about to say, like, is he actually a human in it? Or is he a... No, no, he's a Muppet oh, cool. performer. And he also does a lot of uh, creature work. So, like, in Hitchhikers, he was doing creature work. Oh, cool. Uh, 
As Graf Vindicay, or the Graf Vindicay, we have Paul Seed, uh, owner of previously mentioned um, dog. Mm-hmm. Um, only Doctor Who acting credit for Paul. His non-Who credits include Doomwatch, Zed Cars, Survivors, Crown Court, and Alfreda Zimpet. As Shalak, we have Robert Keegan. Only Doctor Who acting credit for Robert. His non-Who credits include Zed Cars, Straw Dogs, A Kind of Loving, Oh No, It's Selwyn Froggett, and Beryl's Lot. Robert passed away in 1988. As the Shreve captain, we have Prentice Hancock. Uh, this is Prentice's last appearance. We've seen Prentice three times before. He was in Spearhead from Space, Planet of the Daleks, and Planet of Evil. One thing I will just say about Prentice, because we're not going to be discussing his character mm-hmm. later on, but I want to call him out because Prentice has been on a lot. Yeah. People would recognize his face. Is in the DVD, he was talking about how like he's the captain of the guard. Like he's mm-hmm. the captain. Um, but in one of the scripts or one of the sort of Radio Times things, they had him down as guard. <laughs> he was like, I'm the captain, goddammit. <laughs> I I figured out my issue with Prentice Hancock, right? Okay. And it actually stems from something I, I watched there recently enough. So when I was young, well six, seven, hmm. accidentally put on the wrong tape uh, at home, wanted to watch some movie, and I ended up watching an Anthony Hopkins movie called When Eight Bells Toll. Hmm. And at the start of the movie, Prentice Hancock appears as a dead body. With the with the incidental da-da music, and I was like, mm. "Fuck!" I was terrified. <laughs> I was terrified. Reese, and like you know, it's a great movie. It's really, really, really good. It's like imagine Anthony Hopkins as James Bond, and that's what it is. Mm. Uh, so I watched the majority of it in there recently enough, and at the start I was like, "Wait, that's Francis Hancock." No wonder I don't fucking like him. He scared the <laughs> shit out of me as a kid. Francis. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> As Binro, we have Timothy Bateson. Uh, only Doctor Who acting credit for Timothy. His non-Who credits include The Labyrinth, Merlin, The Italian Job, Hogfather, and The Bill. Timothy's final performance is actually the voice of Creature in 2007's Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Huh. After Timothy passed away in 2009, his character, voice actor, was replaced by Simon McBurney in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. So again, um, Timothy is another person who probably worked quite closely with Nigel. Again, he was a like a character performer mm. and as in like a like puppet yeah. character performer uh, and voice actor. Lastly, we have the woman herself. So as Romana, we have Mary Tam. So Mary Tam was born in 1950. She began her acting career on the stage in Birmingham Rep in 1971 and moved on to London in 1972 where she appeared in the musical Mother Earth. Before being Doctor Who, she was actually in several several films. Most notably, she was in The Odessa File and The Likely Lads. She was not initially interested in playing the companion to the Doctor. She kind of believed that the role was kind of the damsel in distress or the sort of like popular misconception about the companion. Um, but she changed her mind when she was assured by the producers and her agent that Romana would be different. She specifically took the role because Romana's a time lady, a member of the Doctor's own people, and therefore would be as capable as the Doctor. And that's why she originally agreed. She also acknowledged, and she says it on the DVD, that like it's a big step to step in as the companion. It's a big, big honour to mm. be asked. Um, so, you know, she was delighted to be asked, but she wasn't quite sure until they said that, like, no, the character will be more of an equal and so on. She's like, okay, that'd be interesting to play. She would go on to appear in Doctor Who for one season. 
we have her for season 16. After Doctor Who, she acted in film and television, playing um, most prominent characters being Penny Crosby in Brookside from 1993 to 1995, and Yvonne Edwards in Paradise Heights in 2002. She also did guest roles in a number of loads of other things. While she never returned to Doctor Who on screen after season 16, she did do a number of big Finnish stories reprising her role as Romana. Mary Tam passed away in 2012. Um, before we move on, and I suppose to end things on a more upbeat note, yes. I remember something from back in 2010. So there used to be a show, uh, no, it changed the, the title of the show changed numerous times. It used to be called The Certain Night Project. For a while, it was The Friday Night Project, and it was The Sunday Night Project, all this type of stuff. It was mm-hmm. Alan Carr and Justin Lee Collins. But they used to have guest hosts, and one time, David Tennant was on it. And one of the bits on it was that they would prank a member of the public. Now, there was this uh, person that apparently he had bought the Key to Time uh, production um, prop at auction and uh, like he, he had it but he went to another science fiction memorabilia um, auction but what had happened was his housemate had given the prop to the guys from the Saturday Night Project or whatever night and David Tennant was the guest of honour at the auction so he was auctioning off all this memorabilia and he brought up the key to time and your man started freaking out because David was like this is the official authentic prop from the, the series and I was like that's been, that, that's mine. That's mine. Initially, <laughs> you could see him fucking slowly freaking out before they eventually give back to him. That that would be that would be terrifying in a number of ways. Yeah. A because I'm one of those people where I'm like incredibly socially awkward, so I would just sort of be sitting there going, "What the hell?" Hmm. Like I wouldn't say anything. Um, but also, I would never talk to that person ever again. <laughs> Like, ever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. So that that's why I would never do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Cool. Shall we move on to our character discussion for today, so Paddington? I believe we should. So... This week, we have the Doctor, we have the Companions of Romana. K-9 doesn't do a whole lot in this, so I'm safe to assume that he is best boy as always. Yeah, best boy. Good dog, going, doing good dog stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have the prominent characters of Garen, Unstaff, and Binro. Mm-hmm. And then the villains of the Graf, Indicay, and Shalak. Indeed, indeed. So, uh, I did the socials, so I shall start us off this week. Cool. And... We kind of started off where we finished last season. The Doctor mm-hmm. being egotistical, sulking, uh, but whereas last time we had someone that would kind of call him out in his pomposity at times, mm-hmm. now we have someone that can actually call him out in his intellectual bullshit. <laughs> because Romana is... And this is the thing, it's a... Romana is actually smarter than the Doctor. Yes. Yeah, well, in certain ways. Into, academically, she is smarter than the doctor. Yes. Academically, she is smarter than the doctor. Um, but I like the vibe that they have. And again, this, I think, 
speaks to Tom's ability as an actor, where he he has made it abundantly clear he does not want a co-star. He does not want the partnership. Yet, he seems awfully good at actually building the, the good character relationship between his co-star. Like, we saw it last year, or last season, with Louise Jameson. He had, mm. They had a really good rapport when, obviously, when Leela was written well, but they had a really good thing going. And here, I think we're seeing the seeds of that as well. A small bit. Mm. Um, and, you know, that, be, but other than that, and like, you know, it's not like the Doctor being a hero, the Doctor saving the day. There's one huge major red flag on this story. Is it the end of it? It is, because this is a thing that it's recently kind of stuck in my craw a bit. And now, Doctor Who is one of my favourite shows. It, it, it really is. Hence these weekly conversations. <laughs> and I love the Doctor as a character. I, I do. But I am fully aware of the fact that he is a very flawed character. But lately I've been seeing this thing, and it's again because a uh, speech that Stephen Moffat gave. It was the whole, you know, when they created this hero side of things. You know, they didn't give him mm-hmm. an X-Wing, they didn't give him a blaster, they didn't give him all this kind of stuff. Now, that to me is kind of subtle shade at those other heroes. Mm-hmm. And this just adds kind of fuel to my belief that it is shade because this whole like you know this hero doesn't do this completely undershot by the fact that he puts the grenade on a guy's pants and lets him wander off to his death yeah I, i've i've thoughts on that yeah as well though we'll, we'll get to when i'm going like, through this is the there. this is the, as deliberate as the c uh c double base explosion you know yes it's like there is an opportunity here for the doctor to do what the doctor has done countless other times talk the psycho down from the ledge mm. He doesn't do it. Instead, yeah. he 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 just straight up murders a guy, you know. Yeah. Um, no, I'm not saying that the graph is an angel. Absolutely not. But the whole keeping it with the aesthetic of like you know this particular hero doesn't do this. It's completely fucking shot away by this. And I think for like everything else that the doctor does, that's positive in this. Which like there's nothing really new here. I mm. think this really does kind of fucking just throw all that out the window a bit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, Your thoughts. I'll, I'll get to it in a second when I'm when going, going through my part, but yeah. 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 <laughs> so I think overall you and I had very similar thoughts on the Doctor this one. I will say 51% on the second attempt. Why am I not surprised? Yes, this is in reference to the fact that the Doctor only got a 51% passing mark on his second attempt at the Time Lord Academy exams. Yeah. Um, why am I not surprised? Like, This is the same guy who didn't realise that he had a fast fucking return switch that was just pressed down the whole time and then nearly brought them back to the beginning of time or whatever. Yep. Um, it also sort of ties into you know, some later stuff, you know, even some like modern stuff, like in Moffat's era, you know, we have the Doctor not being able to fly the TARDIS properly and whatever. Um, I, I think it's a funny joke um, and it works well. Um, for me, this story as a whole is quite interesting for the Doctor because he's forced on a mission by someone he at least acknowledges as a superior, even if he doesn't fully respect them. Mm. Do you know? 
Um, but also he's forced to work with a companion who he doesn't know and he didn't choose. Hmm. Do you know? Like she literally is placed in his TARDIS, just sat there looking all pristine and amazing. Um, and he has no choice. And so it's very interesting to see Tom's doctor react to that. Do you know? Because with Tom's doctor, we had Sarah Jane, who was a pre-existing companion, who he clearly got along very well with, and Harry, who kind of fumbled his way into their dynamic, but mm. there was never any um, full-blown animosity towards Harry. No. Then you had Leela, who they had a full adventure together. Mm-hmm. She was the native he was on her planet they were working together collaboratively before she said can i go with you and he said yeah i'm off they popped here he has someone being forced on him that he has no control over in a situation that he has no control over it's interesting to see how tom reacts to that for me their relationship in this story it reminded me a lot of patrick Troughton and stockter and zoe Mm. do you know this sort of I'll protect you, but also, like, stop thinking you're more intelligent than me because you're not. Kind of screams of the Crotons type thing. Yeah, exactly. Now, I am willing to give another story to see how the relationship settled because this is the first story and they were introduced in a very antagonistic way from the Doctor's perspective anyway. Hmm. Um, but as I'm sure you can imagine when you're watching it, I didn't particularly like the way he spoke to her. They had a couple of nice moments, but overall it was very antagonistic, very condescending. Um, like I said, very callbacks that second doctor and Zoe, but there were extenuating circumstances. So willing to give it another week, that's settle, see how next week's story goes and see how the relationship develops. Because like you said, the chemistry between the two of them, like Mary Tam and Tom work very, very mm. well together. Mm. Um, and even Mary Tam was saying in the DVD extras that like, you know, Tom is obviously at this point well established in the role, like crazily well established in the role to the point where people think it's kind of annoying. Like he kind of thinks that he's producer. He thinks he's director and he's giving him his two cents. Like there's like quotes being put by Graham Williams on scripts being like, don't let Tom see this mm. because you know what he'd do with it. Take it out, whatever. But Mary kind of reacted really strongly to that. It's like when Tom would ad lib, Mary would be like, okay, let's let's have fun with it. Let's run with it, whatever. She kind of worked really well with him on mm. that. I think that I think we do see that on screen. The ending. Not a fan. As I'm sure you can imagine, because you felt the same way. Um for that whole sequence. Which goes on for quite a while. Like, we know it's the doctor. The doctor doesn't say anything. He's just fucking standing there in the background. And I'm convinced that half the time that was Stuart Bell. Uh, wasn't Tom. It was Stuart Bell. I'm convinced it was. But to deliberately... Okay, first of all, the graph did put the, exp- the bomb on him. Mm. But then to deliberately switch it back on him as opposed to letting him walk away and then fucking the bomb somewhere else and running for it or doing anything else it does not sit right with me because A, it's so fucking casual he's just standing there going down 5, 4, 3, 2, mm. 1, kaboom it's so casual and you're just like okay where is the empathy like yes 
Graf is a right fucking prick. Right, and we'll talk about him more later on. But the casual way it's done and then the way it's celebrated at the end doesn't sit right with me because it really ties into something that we see we see a lot with Tom's doctor. I think we've had it happen a few times now. Like, so you called out the sea devils in, you know, in terms of John Pertwee, but this idea of being okay with setting people up to die by their own hand. Yeah. Like, Which I don't particularly like. Now, if that's what makes Tom's doctor Tom's doctor, that's fine. Each doctor is their own character. Each doctor has their own thing, whatever. But that would be one component of Tom's doctor that I'm not a fan of. But like, I don't even, I don't even think it's that. It's just that, like, there is this weird. Like, we're 98 stories in now, hmm. and we, we have firmly established that the doctor is a hypocritical person. He is very hypocritical. Yeah. But I think the thing that bothers me is that he's never been called on it. Mm. He's never been called on it by like a beloved character. Like I think we both would have liked to have like we would have been very interested to see a confrontation between the Doctor and the Brig after the Sea Devils. Yeah. You know? Um and or even like the doctor and Leela, you know, the whole thing of um her using Janus Thorns versus his like passive whatever. Yeah, this and this type of thing. And the no, and I maybe like I'm kind of like bringing stuff from pre- my previous feelings from present day into the past, which is that like I think certain i think some people miss the point that the doctor is an incredibly flawed person and while no like and i absolutely love flawed characters love them Mm. but don't venerate them for what they're not yeah i think i mean looking back on the companions that we've had up until now there's only two experiences of someone really taking the doctor's task i can think of one is Jamie, when he basically like stop fucking playing me around, like I mean, he gets really angry with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and two was our queen Barbara. Yes. In the third fucking story, mm. <laughs> you know. But since Barbara basically laid him out in that one, you know, you should be down on your knees thanking us, all this kind of stuff. Mm. Um, we haven't really had someone really take him to task on his bullshit even the jamie thing it wasn't even doctor being that way in general it was like stop playing me specifically yeah um and i think you know it'll be interesting to see again i'm kind of taking this story as an introductory one with the romana you know i'm not really we'll get to her in a second i'm really judging her too much mm. based off of this one do you know mm-hmm. um just because of the way the character was introduced was in a sort of pseudo antagonistic style anyway um, but I will be interested to see if we have this type of thing happens again. Will Romana take him to task on it? Mm. And it's interesting. Because, sorry, the, the, mm. one of the things that just going back to your point, like it's very important that the Doctor has flaws. Mm. It's very important the Doctor has flaws. It's what makes the Doctor a relatable character. Mm. But if people, if the flaws aren't acknowledged in the show, mm. then. 
are they even canonically flaws? Yeah. Or do you just chalk, oh, that was just bad writing. The Doctor isn't really like that. Yeah. But no, he was called on it, so he is. Do you know? Because, like, you you mentioned Barbara taking the task. That was part of a character arc. That was part of a character yeah. progression. So, like, that's acknowledged and that's, for the rest of the run, we see mm. the impact of that confrontation. Jamie blowing up with the Doctor, it's really confined to that. Mm. It's confined to the evil of the Daleks because it, like, my fucking, the one, my, my hill that I fucking always die on is Web of Fear. Mm. And it's like, I really wish Jamie had just bollocked him out of it for mm. bollocking Jamie out of it when he was in the wrong. Um, but yeah, so I've, I think this is like, I, like, I, this, like this story rattles around in my head every time I see, and like I think that's like maybe like a big change in the way that Modern Who was done because Modern Who was like essentially like it's see um, like from Eccleston onwards it is essentially one long continuous progression for the Doctor. It's mm. not just like a different incarnation, different era, all this type of stuff. It's one big long pro- progression. So I think it's easier to kind of put the statements about like, oh, he's a hero, he's like walking the path, all this type of stuff. But then like, you really do have to acknowledge all the fucking bad shit that he has done. Yeah. I find it interesting as well. Like you mentioned earlier, your Moffat's comment around like, you know, you have this hero, they didn't give him an X-Wing, they didn't give him a gun, they gave him a screwdriver. No, they fucking didn't. They gave him a cane, a pipe and a notebook. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, 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 and the ability to fight hand to hand when he had to. Yes. But, we'll address it when we get to the time, but given his less than complimentary comments about that particular era, I don't think he likes to focus on that era when it comes to his vision of the show. That's true. No, we we said, like, no, like, that's a conversation for the day. Yeah, that's a conversation for a different day. How about instead we move on to the new addition to the show? Yes, Romana. Romana. What were your thoughts? Other than she looks very nice in her. Yeah, as I said, like like that was my whole thing. Okay, I'm gonna get this way out of the way at the start. Holy fuck, she is stunning. Like she is just amazing to look at. Mm. And like, but there's a sense of regality to her. Yes. And and like it's not even and that's why I think it was like that adds to the thing. It's like that Mary Tam is a very regal looking person. Also, like Mary herself carried herself that way yeah, you can she, see like in the interviews and stuff she she carries herself very well yeah she did um and i liked romana throughout this because i think this was definitely more a point that i wanted to bring up for her than i did with the doctor this is very much like those cop movies where the rookie fresh out of the academy is paired up with the veteran hand yeah. you know and you've got you see someone you see the clash of styles because like you have the by the book approach to how to do things versus um, someone that's lived the life. And it actually kind of reminds me of, I'm trying to remember which one it is. I think it's The Enforcer. It's a, one of the Dirty Harry movies. And he gets paired up with a female detective, uh, Time Daly, I think is the one that plays her. But he does like, he, it, it's actually it, it's very reminiscent of this because the scenario is is that there's meant to be more female detectives on on the force as part of like the mayor's initiative for the city, mm. and Dirty Harry, who is 
Dirty Harry, like he's very fucking like kind of chauvinistic. He doesn't believe that women belong as detectives in the field, that type mm. of stuff. He's forced to sit on the panel. And here comes Tyne Daly's character, who's from like records and filings and this type of stuff. And he like he just kind of goes like, I want to know what, what you do when someone puts a gun in your head, goes hit the ground, you fucking son of a bitch. And like the rest of the board is like, you know, like you, that's out of line or whatever. And Tyne Daly just kind of responds to him in the way that he he was he was hoping that she would respond like in the sort of like well like you know i fucking tell him whatever mm. and it's very reminiscent of this because you have the doctor who's who is someone that doesn't want to get saddled with like an academy fucking like upper release someone that doesn't know their arse from their elbow when it comes to the real world but she gives as good as she gets despite of that like she never lets him get away with his bullshit like every time he kind of says some snide comment or says whatever, she she doesn't meekly back down. She kind of goes, "Hey, on a fucking second. But he just changed the, the topic there. So at least we know that she's not afraid of confrontation, which I think is kind of cool, and it's going to set up something interesting down the line. Yeah. Um. Also, and very briefly, I enjoyed her interactions with K Nine because it did feel very reminiscent of Leela, but in, in different terms again because he's helping her grow in the real world whereas like k9 mark one help leela they kind of go well this is what this means and this is what this means and this is life outside of your planet whereas this version of k9 can help leela kind of realize that you know he's making fun of you he's taking you for a ride that's not what this means that like your real world knowledge essentially Hmm. um but yeah i am looking forward to seeing the rest of mary's run on the show how would you? Very good. So for me, her first few scenes, like the first few scenes in the TARDIS for introduction, I was like, okay, she's my kind of companion. A, she's a beautiful brunette, which is my type. Um, <laughs> is what it is. Um, but she reminds me a lot of Liz Shaw. In those first few scenes, I was like, mm, yeah. if Liz Shaw ever got into the TARDIS, this is, this is what she would have been like. Um, because obviously in the TARDIS, Romana's still in her safe space. She knows TARDIS. She's familiar with TARDIS. Is TARDIS? TARDISes. TARDISes. She's familiar with TARDISes. You know, like this is technology she knows, situations she knows, and whatever. And so we really get to see her sort of sassing him a bit and whatever. Very Lishaw vibes. Loved it. There's a hint of Zoe to her as well. Which is quite good. Um, I think it comes across better the way Mary does it. I don't know why. I think it's just the way she does the Ice Queen stuff kind of matches up a bit better than Zoe, who is kind of the teenager trying to prove herself. And yeah. There's a bit of a difference there just in terms of the age and stuff. I, I, yeah, Zoe comes across as, at times, slightly bratty, smart teenager. Yeah. Yeah, whereas Romana comes across as confident, self-assured woman. Yeah. Um, after those first few scenes, though, so once they actually get onto Ryboss... I was kind of to the point that Romana didn't really have a lot to do. Mm. She was just kind of there. And I don't know if that was intentional because it showed that the doctor wasn't letting her do anything. Even like the one bit that you thought that, oh, that would be Romana would step up in this part would have been, um, you know, fixing Garen's communication device. Yes. And then the doctor hodgepodges the two-way radio. Mm-hmm. I, I was kind of hoping for him to fail. Mm-hmm. and for Romana to jump in and do it because really other than 
her making comments about the TARDIS, but not be able, but not be allowed to fly it, and her holding the little stick thing. <laughs> she doesn't really do a whole lot, <laughs> um, which is disappointing since she's meant to be his equal. But again, I'm giving Romana quite a long runway to get herself going here. Mm-hmm. Because of the way the character was introduced. Yeah. She's introduced in a way that would obviously make the Doctor be a little bit wary of her. A little bit like, oh, don't know, don't like you, whatever. Do you know what I mean? So, I'm giving her a long runway. But my initial impression of her was I liked her. Mm-hmm. Like I said, she gave me a little Shaw vibes. She looks amazing. She carries off the ice cream thing very well. Um, and I kind of like... The idea of them being able to work together, mm-hmm. do you know, that like he can teach her about the real world and she can sort of not teach him things he should have known before, but sort of be the Liz Shaw, like be someone that can bounce ideas off of. It can be a collaborative experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The one area I disagree with you is the canine dynamic. Right. I didn't like the way canine and her interacted and i'm hesitant to blame k9 because k9 is the best boy ever mm-hmm. but you could tell k9 picked up on the way the doctor was treating her mm-hmm. he wasn't like grant is k9 mark two mm-hmm. leela's k9 is off with leela yeah do you know and they had a very special relationship which i loved to my core mm-hmm. um but here like this k9 is the doctor's dog mm-hmm. and like when they're going through the tunnels and Leela realizes that your man has stolen the little rod thing or whatever, K9 is sort of very abrupt with her. And I don't know, he just doesn't seem as welcoming as K9 Mark 1 would have been. Mm. But is that because the doctor was sort of like, you could tell when she first appeared, it was like the doctor was arm around him, kind of being like, we don't like her. Like, come on. Like, do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, and, um, and as you kind of pointed but, out, K- you know, K9 is good boy, best boy, so it's kind of hard to blame him. And as you pointed out, K9 Mark 1 was adopted as well, like from what was his name? Professor. The Professor, yeah. yeah. And like K9 was Leela's dog. Mm, yeah. Do you know? It's actually, again, because I was watching the special features for the Ripus Operation, and they were talking about you know, the run up to this season and whatever, and they were talking about K9, and they played the clip from um, The Invisible Enemy where the professor's kind of like oh you know i can't really keep him and the doctor's like what no and he's like oh can we can we like canine mark one was leela's dog mm-hmm. canine mark two is clearly the doctor's dog <laughs> yeah no we'll, um, we'll see how long that lasts if we'll see how long that lasts we'll see like again long runway here right Next week, I'm going to be checking all these boxes and seeing, yeah. are these things still happening? Do I have these same concerns? And whatever. Mm. Um, but yeah, we would never blame K9 for anything because no. he is best boy. So, studying brunettes and bronze adonises, those are your types. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they are. With the occasional redhead thrown in for good measure. Yeah. <laughs> Right. our friend Vicky did joke I can't remember what she was referring to but they were watching something mm. and she, oh they were watching The Good Witch which is Catherine Bell 
Catherine Bell was in Jag. She played Mac in yeah. Jag. Mm-hmm. So Vicky and Chris are watching The Good Witch, and Vicky turns to Chris apparently and says, "This character, I've forgotten the character's name, but Catherine Bell is giving me massive Elizabeth Weir vibes. Trish would love her." Mm. <laughs> and I was like, "Yes, yeah, yes, I did when she was in Jag." <laughs> And Vicky's like, you have such an obvious fucking tell of life of money. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just big neon sign over here going, subtle, subtle. Yeah. Uh, oh, so, but anyway. Yeah. Let's move on to our yes. prominent characters. So we have Garon, Unstoff, and Vinro. Yeah. Which order would you like to discuss your characters in play? Um, we'll go Binro, Unstaff, Garn, I think. Okay, so what do you think of Binro? So, maybe not so much Binro himself, but I like characters like Binro. Mm. Because not only do like, they help flesh out the world that the stories are in, but they help flesh out supporting characters as well. Mm. Uh, or, potentially, new companions... By giving them something to latch onto, I think. Mm. Like, um, Binro and Unstaff really do fall, f- um, they're the emotional core of the story, I think. And, mm. like, granted, no, like, you know, it's, I do have thoughts about that aspect of the story overall, but the thing, like, the, I, like, there's a really good performance here because he's a very tragic character. You mm. know, just the whole thing, like, I, like, kind of Copernicus or Galileo, mm. that type of thing. I went against the teachings and I was fucking inc- Spanish Inquisition for it. Um, so he's very much of a tragic character. And as a result, because of, like, the story we've heard and the relationship he's built with Unstaff, you actually feel sorry for him when he dies. I I did feel sadness at his death. Mm. And like you also but I think that's largely down to some really good writing by Bob and really good acting. A really good performance mm. from that character. So like yes, Binro does not contribute much to the overall story. But they add an emo- he adds an emotional weight to this story. Mm. And that is my thoughts on Binro. <laughs> I would agree. Um, I felt so bad for him. Hmm. I sort of consider, like, Binro and Unstaff scenes, for me, are very sort of proto-Vincent and the Doctor. Yes. In Modern Home. Mm-hmm. Do you know, it's very much this idea of you don't know how amazing you are. Hmm. And people today don't recognize how amazing you are. Hmm. But eventually people will. And the difference is obviously in that future story, Vincent gets to see it. Yeah. Binro doesn't. No. But I love how even with his dying breath, he just wants confirmation that like, he turns to Unstaff and he's like, I was right, yeah. wasn't I? And Unstaff's like, yeah, yeah, you were. Hmm. You really were. Um, and I love it. And like Binro is a character who he could be bitter and twisted. Mm. Do you know? He could be a right prick who just is out for himself because he's been maligned by everybody else. But what I love is that he never tries to rob Unstaff. No. He helps him, mm-hmm. 
because he sees that he's going to be captured or whatever. He obviously hates the people in authority because they made him Binner of the Heretic. Mm-hmm. But like, Unstoff is going around with a million Obex in his pocket mm-hmm. or in the little pouch thing. And never once is it even hinted that Binro's trying to take advantage, mm-hmm. that Binro's going to like take his money and run. Never. He wants to help him so much. Mm-hmm. Even before he finds out that Unstoff is from a different planet. Yeah. And when he finds out that Unstoff is from a different planet, he'll stop at nothing to help him. He's just such an inherently mm. good character. Mm. That yes, I mean, I'll talk about my overall, his scenes could have been removed and it wouldn't have taken anything from the story, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. In terms of plot. no. But in terms of character development, in terms of you connecting with Unstoff, Yes. In terms of you understanding Rybos as a community, understanding where they fit in the galactic structure or whatever, he is so essential to that. Mm. And he's just so lovely that, yeah, when he dies, you do feel a massive emotional hit. I'm trying to think of like who was the last character we saw die on screen that you actually felt like 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 story based companion. Not even a story based, a story based person, who you actually felt the emotional hit. I'm struggling to think of who the last person would have been. Um, oh, um, maybe not to the same extent, but the bosun from Horror Fang Rock. Yeah, no, that, that Horror Fang Rock was the one that was coming to. I was like, I know we discussed one in that story. I was like, so Horror Fang Rock, but that was that was a while ago. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And you know. I think I think there's a lot in though in Binro scenes that you could take and make into their own thing, like a Vincent and the Doctor yeah. story. Because yeah. because like much like the horror of Fang Rock, that character's fate is uh adversely affected by higher ups or yeah. like an elite group that ends up putting them into like the fucking road to death like essentially so yeah. that when he does die it's like that's just fucking tragic you know yeah like it's the guy who just is doing everything he can to help yeah and he gets shafted yeah. because of other people's mm. decisions and stuff like that mm-hmm. um but yeah Binro probably the standout character in this story yeah like and it's like as you said like does it add anything to the plot not a fucking jot it helps you connect a bit more with Unstaff as an individual, absolutely. Mm. But like I like the actor that plays him, if he had read the whole script and it kind of you know like it kind of goes, right, I don't really add much to this, but I'm gonna act the fuck out of this part. And he really did. Like he, mm. I love it when like we like we've said before like that Bob is like when Bob is on, Bob is on. Like, like he's mm. fucking phenomenal. And yeah. I love it when like the supporting cast just gets his writing so right. Mm. Like, like when he wrote for Leland, um like even just the majority of supporting characters are Wing Chiang. Like they yeah. yeah, like as up and down as that story is, the fucking performances by everyone is just oh so good. Mm. Yeah. Um yeah. So next it next it's his partner in crime well not his partner in crime his partner in philosophy uh is uh unstaff 
Yes. And I like I really liked on stuff. Mm. Um he could have very easily just been a filler character. Yeah. Um like the 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 Baldrick of the fucking thing, if you will. <laughs> but like again, his work alongside uh like his moments alongside Binro are great. And again it shows like that he's Unstaff isn't inherently a bad person. No. No. And like and see that's the thing like, you know, with when it comes to like, you know, con men or that type of thing. They can they can be portrayed as like, you know, the gentleman rogue, or they can be portrayed as like an absolute fucking thundering prick. And he's not that. Like he doesn't, he doesn't take advantage of anyone that won't suffer, you know, as a result of it. And he does kind of remind me of me a small bit in terms of like you know, t- spinning the story and like you know fucking Garrett just standing on his foot going, "Would you just shut the fuck up and keep it simple?" And I'm like, you know, like there are times where I'm like, I ramble on, and like you have been testament to it, and we just kind of going, "Would you just shut up?" <laughs> uh, <laughs> in fairness I think we all have those moments yeah but like and again just I think that that's one thing about this story and Rartan sound like a broken record throughout the whole thing everyone is giving a great performance no matter like mm. no matter what role they're in or how like what little dialogue or whatever they're in, everyone gives their best performance in this everyone is just mm. like I'm like We've seen before where people phone it in. No, no one's phoning it in here. Um, and yeah, like I just again, I really, I really like Unstoff as a character here. Yeah, I do. I think the thing about Unstoff is okay. First of all, I do to Michael Crump. His accent work, mm-hmm. a little bit offensive, but in a funny way. When he puts on the U.R. yokel voices, well, like there's the voice he does when he's talking about like oh sure my dad found this and my yeah, dad did this or, but it's the Irish accent he puts on oh. when he's attacking the guard I'm like why did he need to put on an accent when he's attacking the guard and why a really bad Irish one I'm like I'm a little bit offended but also it's kind of funny so like you know six one half dozen other yeah. um, I think the thing about Unstoff is we get from the off that the unstop as it were um fat punchers we, we get from the off oh that's bad <laughs> it really is move past it move yeah. on it's gone now we're done um that he is a generally nice guy do you know um does he cover his own ass at times yeah is he out to make a buck yeah i mean his whole thing about like, oh, my dad found this and I have this map and whatever. And your man's like, what the fuck are you doing? Why are you mentioning a map for? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> he's clearly out of it. But he's also very considerate and very kind. Like, he's listening to Binro describe how he's being persecuted. And Unstoff knows. Hmm. He knows that it's real. And as opposed to trying to continue with the facade that he's from... Right, boss. He just completely drops the act, and he's like, "No, you're, you're. I'm not from here. You're, you're right. It's real." 
And the whole way through the catacombs and everything, he's constantly looking out for Binro. Mm. Do you know? And even like at the end, like his scenes with Garen, well, at the end in the catacombs, um, not the very, very end, but his scenes with Garen where he's clear, like, you know, it's time to cut and run. Mm. Like, people are being hurt. This didn't go well. It's time to cut and run. Wait, you took that thing off that woman? You've now left that woman wandering around on her own? What What are we on about? Like, And then, obviously, when Binro dies, you can tell that Unzoff is kind of like, Garen, you prick. Like, it's done. It's done. Mm. We're finished. It's done. We're good. Stop. Um, And I kind of get the sense at the end that Unstaff was probably kind of happy the doctor took the I've forgotten the name of it. Jethric. Jethric. The Jethric. Yeah. Do you know? Because it means that at least at the scale they have been working, the con is at an end. Yes. Do you know? Like this was meant to be their last job. But then if Garen still had the Jethric, they'd probably just go out and do it again. No, this was it. This was their last job. It's, It's done. Unstaff never wanted to hurt anybody. Do you know, even though obviously what he's doing does hurt people by association, like they're ripping people off for millions. Mm. They're selling a planet. Do you know, they're doing terrible things. We're not, we're not going to lie about that. Like what they're doing is despicable. But he's clearly looking at it from a sort of rob from those who have yeah. enough that they won't miss it mm-hmm. type thing. Um, so yeah, overall, I think a generally nice guy. I'm glad he survived. <laughs> mm. Um, I don't think if one stuff had died, I don't think it would have hit as much as Benro, but it would have been unfortunate. Yeah, like that was the thing. Like I was, I was like fully expecting the double whammy. I really was, mm. and it would have been sad. And I agree, maybe not to the same extent as Benro, but I definitely would have felt the emotional connection to his death because of what we had seen so far. Yeah, yeah. And then we have the main prominent character himself, mm. Garen. He's a charismatic so-and-so, isn't he? He is a bit of a Del Boy-like. Absolute Del Boy. Absolute. Um, he reminds you of Adrian Edmondson, you know, uh, Eddie from uh, Hitler, or Eddie from, Hitler, Eddie from Bottom, um, <laughs> whose name was Eddie Hitler. Um, but the, I, one of my favourite things about Garen, other than his posh, posh accent, of course, um is his ability to roll with the punches and incorporate any setback into the scheme. Like, mm. he's just fucking whip-smart. Um, and it makes for some very entertaining watching. Like, he's a mm. very entertaining character. I really do enjoy it. Um, outside of that, though, as a character, one thing I really appreciate and I really enjoyed was that he never tried to cut and run without own stuff. No. He, he never left his partner behind. And, like, you would... Like, clearly he's the the idea man. He's the one that... Um, mm. No, well, Unstaff is the one that kind of, like, you know, does all the risky stuff. Um, Garen views it as a partnership. Like, so you, you mm. would possibly think, like, you know, that... After, like, after, like, he found Unstaff in the thing, and, like, you know, like, they reunited. And, like, when he said, I'm not going to leave without Binro, um... Like he could have very easily, if he was the type of character, just fucking clubbed Unstaff to death, taking the stuff and run. Mm. But he didn't. No, he basically, they're they're like 
Yeah, I think what was it? Was it? Kind of remind me of the Curse of Peladon with Sorg, mm. you know, not the Ice Lord, but the Ice Warrior. You kind of kept waiting for that fucking other shoe to drop, and then it would be like a double bluff or a double uh, betrayal. No, mm. and like writing kept me on the fucking that kind of kept kept me engaged and interested. And I love that even at the very end, he's fucking defiant against the graph. Like, you know, mm. still trying to get under his skin, still trying to work an angle with him. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, no. Th- those people, they weren't with me at all. Like, I yeah. was ca- I was caught. Like, it was security yeah. and you fucked up. You yeah. Fucked up. So, like, I fucking, I love that. Like, just one last, one last scare to fucking get rid of him. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, just really good performance for a really good character, I thought. Yeah, I'd agree. I think, like I said, the performances in this one really stand out. I think particularly Garen, because like you said, he jumps so quickly between each persona, I suppose, yeah. depending on who he's talking to. Do you know? Hmm. Yep. What actually came to mind when you were talking was over Christmas, I started watching a movie with my dad. I say started watching a movie with my dad. I never get to the end of a film with my dad. Hmm. Because he gets about 10 minutes in, he's like, oh, actually, I changed my mind, I don't like this book. <laughs> he didn't even get through the opening scene of The King's Man. Didn't even get through the opening scene. <laughs> like, actually, I don't like this. Um, but we were watching The Sting, right? Because mm. Dad really wanted to watch it. I was like, fine. I'd never seen I'd seen bits of it before. Whatever. Yeah. But obviously, The Sting, for those of you who aren't familiar, it's a sort of a con, it's a film of con men. Yeah. Doing, you know, needing to pull off a big con to correct yourself from a previously gone wrong big con yeah. type thing. Um, but it, like I said, it's this idea of any little change, it you change with it. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Um, like I, said, I kind of call him a bit of like a, a Del Boy. He's a bit of a space Del Boy. He's a, a Del Boy is not that he constantly has a job on the go, but he's more competent than Del Boy. Like he moved, like he adjusts mm-hmm. better with it. So it kind of reminded me a little bit of, of the sting in that sense, just because yeah. I watched it recently. Um, the thing is that with Garen is that he's a likable rogue. Do you know? Mm. You're kind of like, what he's doing is absolutely horrendous. Mm. Selling planets. And even the way he says it, he's like, oh, I don't sell mines. I sell planets. Yeah. <laughs> As a mines darling. No, yeah. no, I sell planets, dear boy. Planets that he has no right to. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Um, so obviously that's despicable. But... He's such a likable rogue as well. And as well, like he was doing it in a way that, again, like Unstop, they weren't trying to hurt anybody. No. Do you know? Um, you know, they never attacked anyone. They never had weapons or anything like that. It was purely just the con. And you play the con to its conclusion. And that's... And that's where it goes. There was... I agree with you on the unstop thing. Like he would have done anything for unstop. I think, I think there eventually would have come a point where he would have left him behind. But I think we were far from that point in yeah. the story. It would have taken a lot, but it would have eventually gotten to that point. In contrast with a character that we'll talk about in a while, where I think there would have been I, no. I I think if it's point. possibly a snare, like you know, throw me the idol, I throw you the whip type thing, you know. Uh, Raiders of the Last. Yeah, Night, I mean, if it was literally a case of. The end game or unstop, I think. Yeah. The end game might win. Um, the only thing that made me a little uncomfortable with his character, um, and 
this could this probably isn't a character thing it's probably just an actor thing mm. and a setting thing was when they're in the catacombs and they all have to dive into the, the recesses the, yeah whatever you have the doctor dives into one on his own mm-hmm. with a skeleton and you have garen and romana jump into one together which automatically just runs weird because usually you'd have the doctor and the companion yeah together um but he lies her on top of him as opposed to them kind of going side by side. Mm. He's lying flat and he's lying her on top of him. And he keeps trying to hold her still. And like I'm sure it's just the way that it was filmed. But I'm yeah. like, where are your hands going, Garen? <laughs> Do you know? But obviously it's played for fun then later on because then the doctor gets in with them as well. So I think yeah. it was just the way that they did it. I think it was just meant to be jokey fun or whatever. But given the fact that Garen's a bit of a chancer, I'm kind of like, um, not really comfortable with that. <laughs> Do you know? Um, but again, that may have just been a set limitation thing and your man who's playing, like Ian who's playing Garen, not really knowing what to yeah. do or how best to hold her in place or whatever. Um, but if there was one thing I had to pick on with Garen in terms of like feeling a little bit uncomfortable, I'm like, yeah... Could you not have gone side by side? Did you have to lie her flat on top of you? Now, I, I should caveat this, right? Because people are probably getting it in my head. Back to chest. Yeah. So her, she's lying yeah. facing the ceiling, and he's also facing the ceiling. So it's not a uh, boob to chest. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because people no, are wondering but, what but I meant. No, but again, it just kind of raises, like, you can mention the conversation afterwards. Why didn't you dive into another recess? There was no time. We can't have this conversation now. Yeah, no, I just, I just, you know, the woman was in distress. I, yeah. had, to, I had to get her out of the way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, overall, though, likable rogue with a spaced elbow. Mm. And totally, like, the minute the doctor left, he's just like, okay, what's the next? What's the next one? You've unstopped being like, oh, can we just fucking stop? <laughs> Uh, but then we're on to our villains hmm. of the piece which okay I'm going to ask you a question for me they only became villains in like the last episode and a half because <laughs> they were just the other prominent characters up until that point yeah <laughs> like uh, it took a while for clear concrete bad guy to be made clear yes because at the beginning, you're like, oh, is it Garen is the bad guy? Yeah. Whatever. He's a bad guy, but he's not the bad guy. Yeah. Um, but we do have two clear what the fuck people. Yeah. Um, which is Sherlock and Graf. Yeah. The Graf. The Graf. So I presume we'll do second in command first. Yes. So he is very much the old campaigner who has satisfied mm-hmm. his bloodlust and reaped the rewards of the lifestyle um and like this is the thing is that like there are times there are just very slight moments where he has like this soft approach where he's like gives across the impression like oh he's just you know career army and he's always just been the army no then they're completely overshadowed by the fact that he practically goads the graph on at points like, mm. you know, that seems like an insult. Oh, it's a terrible insult, you know, your highness. And like, fucking, he, like, he's, an, he's an enabler more than an advisor because he gets a kick out of like the, the conflict and the war and the violence. So you could, you know that he probably pushes, like, the graph has bloodlust himself. 
but Sherlock encourages it because he then gets his own kick out of it. Yeah. I think the thing for me with him is I didn't really have a whole lot on him, to be honest, because he is the second part to a whole. Yes. Do you know? Um, I don't think the graph works without him. No. They're very much a duo. And he is dedicated to the graph. He'll call him out. Do you know? Like, he is the good right hand. Like, he's not someone who's hanging on coattails, who's, you know, hanging around a powerful man for his own benefit. No, mm. he is the guy who he'll call him out. Like, if we're to go with this sort of good guy version of this, it's Sharp and, um, what's his name? Harper. I've forgotten his name. Harper, yeah. Do you know? constantly there together the two of them you got Harper being like what the fuck this guy has more money than sense whatever cool what do you need me to do for you I'll do it whatever it is yeah you're being an idiot you know you're being an idiot you want to continue being an idiot alright fine cool I, I did tell you though mm. just remember that when this goes to stop I told you you're being an idiot um, so yeah I think he's fully dedicated to Graf I think he's someone who has he has stated his bloodlust in battle it doesn't mean he's not up for a bit more though when the opportunity arises. Oh yeah. He yeah. maybe doesn't go seeking it out. Do you know? But if there's an opportunity, mm. well he's not gonna say no. No, absolutely not. Do you know? And when Graf starts down that path, he's not exactly holding him back. No, he's not he's, as I said, he's goading him like. He's goading him on, being like, Oh, this'll be fun. Yeah. Do you know? Um there's a very um, <laughs> sort of like you know, the bloodlust between the two of them. It sort of has sort of homoerotic yeah, <laughs> sort of connection it, and it, tendencies it, it to does. it. You know, like they both clearly get enjoyment out of the other going down that route. Yeah, you know, absolutely. They feed off of it. They feed off of each other. Um, but the man himself, though. Yeah. Actually, uh, just before you go on, uh, I got the new Sharp novels for Christmas, so oh. I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, but yes, to the graph. So, apart from looking, apart from looking like he's about to belt out the Ultravox classic Vienna because he does mm. look like fucking Midjour, the lead singer of Ultravox, um, <laughs> he is a perfect example of someone being the hero of their own story. Yeah, because like. He like, he starts off kind of going, you know, like, my brother usurped my homeland. We can raise an army to get it back. At which point, and then like, we get guard. Oh, no, he's fucking insane. He's, like, his people hated him. They didn't want him back. Um, so you get the kind of, like, impression, like, and again, I think it's just because I've been reading a book about it. He's, like, one of the old Roman emperors in the sense mm. of, no, no, no. This guy is fucking tapped. Can we please have someone else ruling us instead? Yeah. Um, because like he is tyrannical, and as well, he thinks everyone is ungrateful for everything that he does. Like he views like I really fought and I bled and I like won all these amazing battles, and in the end they just fucking abandoned me. They turned they turned their nose up at me and all this type of shit, and it's like. So we're told that he is a he is a a noble ruling member of this empire, mm. and usually when you hear the word empire, you have like very dark overtones. Mm. 
in this one it's like well, they also can't seem to determine whether they want to call it an alliance or an empire uh, they're two different things yeah but they seem but they seem to mean the same the, the interchangeable in relation to this particular fucking grouping um mm. but it's like is the case of he's too he's too evil for evil people or empire in this thing just means rather than like something conquering it's a not so evil version of an empire, and he. <laughs> the one over here struggling to go. Yeah, I, I just kind of as way. opposed to it being a conquering thing, it's a case of it is an alliance of planets who choose the word empire. Yeah, exactly. Their, yeah, exactly. Like um, the term. like there's a thing there where I think it's in Christopher Eccleston's run. He talks about the fourth great and bountiful human empire, and he speaks about it like in terms of like this. He speaks of it in this almost reverence. But then he sees the dark side of it and he's like, you know, like, oh yeah, so much for the great fork. And it's like, okay, so in this context, the Empire was a good thing until you yeah. saw how decayed and devolved it became. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but like, you know, he's a complete, like, yeah, he's the hero of his own story. Yeah. I think for me with Graf is that he's fucking batshit. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> that, that's a given. Yes. The one thing I'm curious about though, right, is you know, like you said, like he tells the story of he went off to fight for the alliance. You know, he fought for years. He bled. He led men. Blah blah. blah. And then his people didn't want him back. Was he that blood hungry before he left? I get the impression that he is. You know that thing—the divine right of kings. He he probably mm-hmm. believes that it is his right to rule and his right to rule people, the people underneath him in a manner he sees fit. And if they don't acknowledge and revere his divine right, then they are to be punished. So I would say rather than being war hungry, I would say he's one of those rulers, which was peasant, know your place. Yeah, I think he would definitely be that, but I'm curious in terms of the blood hungry part of it. Because that, that's obvious. Like, he clearly, like, celebrates the battle so much and whatever. I'm curious, is he the type of guy where he was the, you know, I'm better than you, like, you know, um, you know, higher power made me leader, blah, 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 um, thing that you just described, but who has no clue about battle. And through the battles, he changed and became the blood-hungry person. Or was he always blood hungry, and the alliances gave him an excuse? I I think it might be option B. I get I get a sense of there's more of a Ramsey Bolton than a Joffrey Baratheon mm. about him. He's more Ramsey yeah. than Joffrey. Yeah, but the one thing he does have is a great love for Sholak. Mm-hmm. He is devastated when Sholak dies, and like I said, there's a very sort of there is a homoerotic nature, a homoerotic yeah. component to it. Because it seems to be the only thing he cares about, other than getting his power back, mm-hmm. is Sherlock. Mm-hmm. Like had Sherlock not died, you know, right in front of him, um, the, his ending would have been very different. Like Sherlock's death literally flips a fucking switch. Mm-hmm. Your man loses it entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, and as weird as it sounds, because we had the lovely, you know, quote unquote, lovely scene, you know, with Binro. And in his last moments, you've got you stop confirming, yes, yes, you know, you were right, whatever. Here in Sherlock's last moments, you've Graf kissing him. You know, he kisses 
both of his eyes, I think, or he goes to the side of his both sides of his head. And it's actually very touching mm. that like he clearly loved this man, be it as a brother, be it as a whatever. He clearly cared about him a lot. And he was probably the only thing he cared about mm. beyond yeah. getting his power back, which makes him interesting. Do you know that he's not just a megalomaniacal maniac? Mm-hmm. He's a megalomaniacal maniac who at least has one person in the universe that he genuinely cared about. He cared yeah. about his safety. He's devastated when he's gone to the point where it fucking sends him off the fucking wobbly end altogether. Mm. Um, so that's one of the things that I find interesting about graphic. Like for the first part, you kind of just think like, oh, he's just the like you said, the Ramsey Bolton, he's just the entitled, whatever. But like in that moment, in that scene where Sherlock dies and he's like, it's basically like, you would imagine that scene is actually a hero's scene. Hmm. Just the hero being like, I'll avenge you. I'll, you know, whatever. And like, you could very easily have that be a hero moment. And like the thing that's coming to mind is fucking Galaxy Quest, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that is the that, that's the hero moment being given to the villain. In a, do you actually in a non comedic um, Thanos and Gamora? Yeah. Yeah. Mm, well, no, like no, like that's in Thanos's head. He's yeah, yeah, but no, but, but 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 well, yeah, and but again, I suppose like kind of the whole thing of like you know very much the hero of his own story. I'm, yeah, I suppose the difference being that here Sherlock reciprocated yes, and also yeah, yeah, cared about crap. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that that's true. That's true. Yeah. I assume from a bad guy's point of view, because I'm not going to besmirch, you know, like Dr. Lazarus. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but but no, but that's the whole point, yeah, is that yeah. like they it, gave the villain this hero the hero moment. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you mean. Sorry. Uh I I need to watch that movie again. It's so good. It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> Why are they smashing things? <laughs> this is ridiculous. I'm not doing it. Why are these here? Uh, oh, loved it. So, so good. Brilliant. I think it's actually one of Sigourney Weaver's best performances oh, ever. Oh, absolutely. And one of Alan Rickman's, actually. Actually, all of them. They're all so good. Not, not. Miners, not miners. <laughs> <laughs> that is by far one of the best quotes from yeah. that oh. <laughs> oh. oh it's so good so we arrive to the end of the film <laughs> or in this case the overall for myself and Trish each gave our score out of five <laughs> I tried to imagine how you would do that in that accent. Uh-huh. It's like, welcome to the middle of the film. Welcome to the end of the podcast. No, it doesn't work. You need the ill yeah, the part. Ilm, it doesn't yeah. work otherwise. Uh, okay. But anyway. Overall thoughts. Yes. So we give scores out of five. Mm-hmm. Overall thoughts in the episode. Paddy Fox. Go. Trisha Brady. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I still remember the very first time I watched this. And I think... Back then, it suffered from the same problem as others that we have rewatched with the podcast. I watched it too late at night to actually mm. fully appreciate it. This is a really good story. It's a really, really good story. Like, it, it's a con story. 
which I, I mm. do love con stories. Like, what I haven't seen The Sting, I did watch Ocean's Eleven over the holidays. <laughs> great, there's also a great uh, British TV series called The Hustle. So good. Um, and, like, I like con con-related media that's actually clever. And this is clever because it keeps you engaged the entire time. Great characters, uh, really rocks on the performances. And I think Binro and Unstaff's scenes are probably the standout scenes in terms of like mm. really good character moments. A potentially interesting new companion along with that new mm. char- companion dynamic. Now, as much as I loved the emotional beats from Binro and Unstaff's story, I felt that that was the biggest flaw in the story because it probably took away screen time that could have been used to fill out Romana's character a small bit more. Mm. Um, and while, yes, I do not like the Doctor's hypocrisy in this, uh, in terms of, like, or just, sorry, not his hypocrisy, the casual nature in which he kills off the graph, um, I think the, I think that's the, that's the biggest one, uh, my biggest objection to this, or my biggest issue with this, Whereas the screen time with Romana, I got something that I like, but I would have preferred to have seen somebody else, but at least I still got some bit of a good trade-off. So I think, all said and done, I'm giving this a four out of five. Very good. Very good. I'm going to make a note on that on our spreadsheet. I always have a weird think over uh, Christmas that, like... (laughs) Will we ever make the the giant spreadsheet public? Maybe we should. <laughs> I, I, I think we should. I think people should see the the rating system and see whether or not they agree with us or disagree with us. Yeah, I need to pivot the shit out of it though. Yeah. Pivot. Um, <laughs> pivot. <laughs> okay, so my thoughts. Yes. So quite a strong opener. Mm. Gotta say that strong opener to the season. You know. We said, and again, if I pull up the the general spreadsheet, like last season started strong and really did not maintain momentum. No. So it's good to see at least another strong season opener. We're going to wait now and see does the season carry the momentum. I think when you're doing a, a season long arc, that momentum is going to be key. Yeah, like that, and that's the thing. Pardon was... the other pun. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I I completely agree because like. This is an ambitious undertaking, mm. especially when you don't you don't have like the same like yeah okay you have the the producer, but you don't have like I don't you don't have consistent writers on this as evidenced by the fact that like Bob Holmes, I think only does I think Bob does two of he, them. He does this. He does this in the Power of Crawl. Um, yeah, but they also had three newbies. I think mm. if I remember correctly. I haven't looked up. The, I think from the from the documentary I watched, I think there's like three newbies, and then you've got two Bobs and one other person who I think is the hmm. Douglas Adams do one. I think he does the Armageddon factor. I think. Yeah. Um, but uh, continue. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I thought we were, I forgot we were on my part. So yeah, um, I didn't get a strong opener. I'm looking forward to seeing what happens mm-hmm. after. But like I said, the key to this being a good arc mm-hmm. is going to be that momentum. Yeah, carrying it all the way through. Um, and that's that's quite difficult to do. Do you know? I mean, it's difficult to do sometimes in just an individual story to keep the momentum going. Mm. Um, never mind to keep it going for six stories and what twenty. Four 
28, 30 episodes. Uh, um, um, 26, uh, one six-parter and five four-parters. Yeah. Um, in terms of the new companion, I think it was a very interesting introduction. Like I said, it's very different to have someone who's completely forced on the Doctor, like literally from the word go, rather than being a story companion who evolved over the story into a friend and whatever. Do you know, like even like if we think about characters that were sort of forced on the Doctor, the last character that was forced on the Doctor this much was probably Dodo. <laughs> she just ran in at the end of the massacre and that was it. Off we go. Mm. Um, do you know, like, because, like, yeah, Katie was forced on him, but that was in, he had control of everything else. Do you know? Yeah. Like, whatever. Um, but that's going to be interesting because also, like, she was forced on him by the Time Lords, you know, by this, oh, this group that he's like, oh, fuck off, leave me alone, whatever. Do you know what I mean? He's got a love hate relationship with them. And by the Guardian as well. Do you know, this other power, which is interesting in its own right, that there's people over the Time Lords and whatever. Just, just on that point in time, right? So she, I didn't put it into the, the recap because it, it doesn't make any sense. She said that the president gave her the, the core mm. rod locator. Technically, the doctor is still the president. He didn't give up the presidency at the end of Invasion of Time. Time? Wibbly wobbly. Yeah. Like, Just because it's the next day for him doesn't mean it's the next day for yeah. Gallifrey. Mm. Also, meh. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I don't because I don't know what comes after this in terms of that particular thing, that presidency. I don't know what comes next, and don't tell me. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. So for me, I was just like, oh, they clearly elected somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and I think Romana is interesting. Um, I was a little bit disappointed that like after her first like fifteen minutes, she didn't really do much for the rest of it. I was, I was waiting for her to have her big aha. I was right, you were wrong, dipshit moment. Mm-hmm. And she didn't really have it. Um, so, it'll be interesting to see. But again, giving a long runway. Yeah. You know, um, the Binro stuff, I agree with you. It was absolutely lovely to watch, but didn't really contribute much to the progression of the plot. <laughs> it could very easily have just had Unstoff disappearing into the catacombs, and that would have been it. Do mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And given the fact they're saying that the story did run over. I wonder what they cut to keep it. Mm. And in fairness, like it's not a bad thing. I mean, they chose to keep the an emotional centre, which isn't bad. Mm. But again, this is Romana's first story. We need time for her to do stuff. Also, I think I would be... Uh, no, this is what I would be interested to read, okay? Because... Well, depending on your score as well, like I think we're both in agreement mm. that it's a very interesting story with some very interesting beats yeah. and all that kind of stuff. It's also the novelization is done by Ian Marker, and we yes. know Ian can. Ian is very good at novelizations. He is, he is indeed. Um, there are a few open questions that I'm curious if the novel would explain, like the seeker, the psychic mm. woman. Mm-hmm. She's really fucking psychic. That never, this never gets discussed. <laughs> yeah, like, and that's that's. <laughs> like, this woman actually has the ability to predict the future. Mm-hmm. 
and to track people. Like they call her the seeker. That's literally what she does. Hmm. And none of our non-ribos people hmm. make a thing of the fact that a woman can predict the future. It's just accepted by everybody as a given. And I'm like, what? That, that's just... And again, because I think like I, I was just like I was looking at stuff recently, and I had like I have some books of it to read. It's very reminiscent of aspects of the Warhammer Forty K universe in the terms mm. of like this like slightly futuristic medieval esque society where psychers are actually mm. a thing. Yeah, but like, it's weird. Like the doctor just accepts it, and mm. like everyone, they just accept it. I'm like, okay. Um, why did Garen never sell? his Jethric if it's worth so much and could like it could buy you an entire battle fleet but he never sells it I'm like is I was waiting for it to be revealed that it was actually fake that he has this fake or impure mm. Jethric that he's po- you know polished up to look really good do you know, but it's fool's gold do you know um, or is he smart enough to know that he holds a fishing rod in his hand and it makes more sense for him to keep it and keep catching fish than it is to sell the fishing rod to buy himself some uh, fish. No, that's it. The, that, that, that is my belief in that, is that he uses it because he knows that he will get more for it. He, he will get more using it in the long run than he would for it itself. Yeah, which I find a little bit questionable just given... Like that he's getting like a million Obex or Obex or whatever mm-hmm. is a lot of money, right? It is. In this universe. He was planning on selling the entire planet for eight to ten million. But that wouldn't have been enough for the graph to buy a fleet. But they're saying that even just with that amount of Jethric, he could get the fleet he wanted. I'm like Okay, so how much would that one piece go for? Because I get playing the long game, but you're taking a risk on the long game as well. Mm. Oh, hugely. Do you know, like, if this thing is worth 20 million, you'll have to successfully pull off this con 20 times. 21 times in order to gain an advantage. Mm. Do you know? It's like playing the house edge. Do you know? Yeah. You have to keep going, but it has to work in order for it to be worth it. You have to do it perfectly every time. So that's why, like, towards the end, I was waiting for the reveal of him either openly acknowledging, hey, you know, I make more money with this than I could ever make selling it, and just whatever. Or for, like, when the Doctor and Romana are, like, changing it back, for the Doctor to be like, oh my god, it wasn't real. Because, let's face it, it isn't Jethric. Not really. Mm. It's a key to time. Yeah. So, is it fool's gold? Do you know? Did he have it tested and it was found to be impure, but it looks perfect? So that's what, like, I'm. This is the questions that were going through my head. <laughs> However, that question, mm. even though it was literally going through my head for the entire fucking story, <laughs> didn't take anything away from it. Yeah. Strong opener, great characters, great heart good acting well paced for the most part mm-hmm. with the exception of even the binro stuff was well placed i was thinking it didn't really do much progression of plot but it was nicely paced in and of itself um interesting new companion first steps on a long runway curious to see next week 
how the how the dust settled on that. So I also gave it a four. Hey, nice. So yeah, we're we're aligned. And I just had a thought, right? Hmm. So this season is yes. about retrieving six segments of something in order to make the magical make a cube. Yeah. yeah. Now we had one story. That was six parts mm. long that also required retrieving six objects to help a magical MacGuffin. Mm. I would be very curious. Can you imagine if that story scores higher than this entire season? That would be interesting. Yeah. Because this is what, like, because when I was looking up, a lot of people were saying, like, you, you have the keys of Marinus, mm. which is basically this story, but yeah. combined down to one story. And this is what I'm saying about pacing, because Keys of Marinus was relatively well paced, except for I think the courtroom episode. Yeah. Was a bit laggy. Do you know? And you're sort of like, okay, you're getting a bit tired towards the end of it. If that happens within one story, to maintain momentum over six, 26 episodes, mm. like six episodes versus 26 is going to be long. So let's find the good old Keys of Marinus. I just looking for We it gave there. them a four. We yeah. gave it a four. So, so far, it's on track mm-hmm. <laughs> to at least be the same but to beat the average like for its average score to be what we gave Keys of Mars it's going to have to maintain a four or above for six stories yeah it's going to be interesting I'm, I'm genuinely really curious to see it um, because we do also now have Graham Williams in the driver's seat for the full season Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was obviously last season. It was handing over from Philip, Philip yeah. to him because like horror of Bang Rock was very Philip. Yeah, um, and whatever. Even though you know, Graham was brought in, it was still a very Philip story. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is going to be interesting to see how this runs its course. Yes, no, I can't wait. Yeah. So tune in next time. When we will have the next story in this season, which I forgot to write down the name of. So, Paddy, it is, please. It is the Pirate Planet. And I. Arr. Arr. Uh, and this is the thing, right? Is my imp- my initial impressions of Ribos Rai- Operation or Rebos Operation was so meh. I completely forget that it's the first part to the key to time. I always think that the Pirate Planet is the first part to the key to time. Um, but no. So, next week, we have the Pirate Planet. <laughs> Who are me hearties? <laughs> Until then, bye. Bye. bye.